Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And I'm here with Dan. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Bill. How are we doing today? Good. And what we're going to do today is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Each episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share everything that we've learned. And besides Steve and myself, as you just heard, we have a special guest slash permanent person here. And that is Dan, who is now officially the third field guide. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's been here the whole time, but we never let him talk. <laughs> that's so probably a wise decision. Dan, you might remember if you're a regular listener, Dan had joined us before for an episode on the snowy owl. Yeah, and just like today, it was cold. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, but not snowy, right? It was just... Uh, it was very windy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were down near the water, near Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a little more pleasant. Yeah, a little more protected here. <laughs> uh huh. So we are at Hunter's Creek County Park, uh, the site of our very first episode. Really? Yeah, our Goldenrod Gall episode. That was here, wow. Yeah, 2015. You know, I remember it, different parking lot though, right? Right, Yeah. right, so we were a different area of the park. So this is a county park about a half an hour southeast of Buffalo, mostly uh, mixed second growth forest. We're gonna be actually traveling through the park, I haven't told these guys yet, but we're gonna be aiming for Mossy Point, hmm. which is a relatively new preserve that was uh, preserved by <laughs> our friends at the Western New York Land Conservancy I think maybe last year. Hmm. So this is December 2023. We have a freshly fallen few inches of snow around us. Perfect winter day here. And our topic for today, Daniel? Timber rattlesnakes. Timber rattlesnakes. Wow. Of which so, we... <laughs> so I take it we will find one. Yeah. Right? Are we going to dig them up? Is that how you find them? We're going to find a hibernaculum. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Folks, we know it's been a long time since we released an episode. I think the longest stretch ever. Mm -hmm. Really? Since we released an oh, episode. Yeah. yeah, so we've huh. been in a bit of a hibernation. But the fact that we're talking about timber rattlesnakes attests to the fact that I started planning this episode at a much more reasonable time for rattlesnakes, <laughs> which was during the summer. Ah, that that's makes a lot was, more sense. Yeah, that's I was questioning the timing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. been uh, quite busy. Stuff may come up. Uh, maybe we'll talk about what's been happening, but uh, we got a lot of material to cover. So uh, why don't we get started on the trail? Let's head this way. All right. Okay. All right. Now, before we get into the episode proper, I do need to make a, uh, a mea culpa, an apology. Hmm. Because uh -oh. on our episode... I think this was two episodes ago, we talked about bald eagles. Okay. And we talked a little bit about the podcast Skeptoid and Brian Dunning. Uh-huh. And we did diss Brian Dunning a little bit. Do you remember? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I, I actually don't remember what we said uh, dissing him, but... Well, we were a little dismissive. I used one of his episodes as one of the sources for our episode on bald eagles, and I, I didn't really agree with the way he had handled it. But uh, in the meantime, I had heard him as a guest on... Uh, oh No with Ross and Carrie. Okay. Great skeptical podcast. Yeah. And he was on there talking about a documentary he recently released on aliens and are aliens really out there and taking mm -hmm. a skeptical viewpoint of that. And, you know, as I'm listening to it, I'm just thinking, you know what? This guy has done so much and does so much so consistently and so well just for a skeptical thought in general. Yeah. That we have no business. At least I have no business. I can't speak for you. I have no business dissing this guy. Now, now that I think about it, I think what we were saying is, because both of us used to watch his show a lot, or we used to listen to his podcast a lot. Uh -huh. I think I said eventually it was just his like, his cadence or something. Like it just, it felt like it was like old propaganda radio. Like just the way he sounds. 
I'm not saying that's what he was doing, but <laughs> I think that was what maybe I had said. I think you're right. Yeah. But I would recommend to people, um, <laughs> yeah, even if you're like Steve and you find his delivery less than ideal. No, you'll, you'll get obsessed for a while, but you, you may or may not fall out of it. So. I would say power through. Because <laughs> he really does do great episodes, and he's so consistent in producing episodes and putting out episodes much better than we are. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, so with that out of the way, I want to stop for a sec because I'm actually going to start with a quotation, mm. a historical quotation. So I'm going to try to do it in a bit of a, a colonial accent, okay? <laughs> oh, gosh. This is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me that the rattlesnake is found in no other quarter of the world besides America and may therefore have been chosen on that account represent her. Tis curious and amazing how one of those rattles singly is incapable of producing sound, but the ringing of 13 together is sufficient to alarm the boldest man living. Wow. <laughs> Very symbolic. <laughs> yeah. So that was Ben Franklin. Do they really have 13 sections on the rattle? So there's a, go ahead, Daniel. No, I was just, I, I wonder if he just picked that because of the 13 colonies. Well, that's the number varies. Thing. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there yeah, is yeah. A, a common folklore out there that says rattlesnakes have 13 rattles. And okay. like, that's one way you can tell how old they are is by how many rattles they have and they'll get up to 13. Huh. But that's not true. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but it's sort of surprising that the, the snake would be what represents America. Right, but we'll talk about why. I had no idea. Did you know, Daniel? No. Like Ben Franklin implied, I had no idea that rattlesnakes are native to the Americas. No. Like yeah, you I don't guess, find them in other places. Yeah, I guess I didn't really so think about their North range. and South America. Yeah. So there's around 36 species of, of rattlesnake. They range all the way from southern Canada all the way down into Argentina. And in the U.S., they're in almost every state. So the only states that don't have rattlers, as far as I could find, were Alaska, Hawaii, which makes sense, Maine, and Rhode Island. And do you know what their primary defense mechanism is? Fleeing. <laughs> You're close. It's to hide. Oh, you yeah. know, like most people, they have this horrible idea that rattlers are out there trying to, to bite everyone. Uh, but their primary defense is to hide, and they're going to hiss and rattle to scare away predators, right? Yeah. Like, yeah they yeah. don't want to have to bite usually if, if they don't need to. Do you mind if I say something really no, quick? No, go ahead. So back when I, the program that I was part of when I went out to Utah, to do those botanical surveys. Our training was at the Chicago Botanical Garden and that was one of the big things that they warned us about. They said, a lot of times you'll end up going into these like riparian areas uh, in order to find your plant populations. But those are th those can be dangerous because with the rushing water and everything, that's the time when you're not gonna hear the rattlesnakes rattle. Oh. And for all you know, it just keeps rattling and you're heading straight for it more and more and more. And you're- <laughs> I'm warning you, yeah. <laughs> this idiot just keeps coming. Yeah, so th that was like a big thing that's always stuck with me where I'm like, when I'm around <laughs> like rushing water and I can't hear everything all that well, right. I do think about that. Yeah. So typically they do try to warn you, right? Mm -hmm. But it's funny you mentioned Utah because most rattlesnake species do like it dry. And the majority of the species here live in the American Southwest in Mexico. Arizona has the distinction of the most rattlesnake species. They have 13 different species. Hmm. But they don't have our star species, the one we're going to focus on today, the timber rattler. So this species, highly toxic, makes its home in the eastern and central U.S. It's only one of four rattlers found east of the Mississippi. Hmm. All right? And Daniel's spent some time in rattlesnake country, so if any, I'm saying anything that you know is untrue, Please speak up. All yeah, right. I love calling you out, Bill. I'm really <laughs> that. If you happen to be here in the Northeast where we are, it's likely to be the only rattlesnake species that you'll find. 
And that's why Ben Franklin paid attention and why the early colonies paid attention to it, because it was the only rattlesnake really present in the 13 colonies. But we'll get into later in the episode why it became a symbol of the colonies. And that's why you see it even today on the, uh, the Steve has one of these flying in his yard, the Don't Tread on Me flag. Oh, that's true. That's He's true. wearing a t-shirt right now. <laughs> yeah, America. <laughs> you have a tattoo, right? I do, I do, I do. <laughs> and that flag, the snake on there, is a timber rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. So oh, okay. We'll, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just did. knew it was a rattlesnake, but I didn't know no it had a specific yep. species. So huh. we'll, we'll talk about that. Now, I do want to shout out to the website Wild Snake Education and Discussion Group. Check out that website. They also have a Facebook group. You'll know you got the right one when you see it's a group by Mike Van Valen, which reminded me of Van Halen, so that was easy to remember. But check that out. They have tons of solid information that is backed by research. Um, Very well-written articles on lots of different species and on genera and on subfamilies. Uh, They definitely know what they're doing. So check out those groups. I got a lot of my information from that group. All right. Uh, Do you guys want to walk a little bit? Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Have you guys seen a rattlesnake? In the I, wild, in the northeast here? I have never seen one in the northeast. No, I've tried. I remember uh, John Roth and I went to certain places to look for the rattlesnakes, but we've never had luck. I imagine it's probably pretty tough to find them. Now, you've run into rattles, other rattlesnakes, right? I have. D- during my times down south, I've ran into rattlesnakes on multiple occasions. So hmm. why don't you get, give people just a, a quick uh, idea of, since you've been on the, the podcast with the snowy owl, you moved down south. Why? <laughs> well, I'm enamored with southeastern environments, mostly different wetlands and swampy environments. And uh, I had an opportunity to work as a naturalist guide in the Okefenokee swamps in southeastern Georgia. And of course, you have five venomous snake species that can be found wow. in the Okefenokee region, and three are rattlesnakes. Oh. I've encountered two of the three, which is what they call down there um, a canebrake rattlesnake. That's essentially just another name for a timber rattlesnake, right. and the pygmy. Um, I have never come across in Okefenokee the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, but I have in Everglades National Park. Hmm. So the, the only encounter, well, I'd say the only time I've ever seen a, a close-up encounter with a, a living, healthy rattlesnake was in the Everglades. Yeah. And this was back in the early 2000s when I was working for the Nature Center. We took down a group to the Everglades. And Rich, who's been on the podcast before, shout out to the Bobcat episode. Uh, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> he and I were were hiking around Eco Pond okay. down at the, yeah, the bottom yeah. of the park. And we were kind of hiking through some brush. And I happened to look down between my feet and there was a, a young snake curled up. And we were taking pictures of it. It was so happy to, to get a close up of a reptile. No rattle that mm-hmm. we could see. But when we got back to the cabin and we showed it to Sandy, Sandy Geffner, who we mentioned on the podcast before, he said, oh, that was a pygmy rattlesnake. He's <laughs> <laughs> just, just a young Dope. one. But <laughs> so, but again, we were standing right over it, getting back to how they tend not to strike unless you yes. really bother them. This snake was not acting in a defensive manner. Uh, it was just basically being very tolerant yeah. of both of us. <laughs> bothering this snake i mean we weren't touching it or anything but Mm -hmm. you know like i said it was right between my feet (laughs) so that's the closest encounter i've had with a a healthy living rattlesnake when i was in utah one of the guys was worried because he said people kill rattlesnakes out there so often because they're so scared of them so it's like they see the rattlesnake they see the rattle they kill it and he said there are rattlesnakes without rattles and 
that if you're just killing all the ones with rattles, it just makes things more dangerous because oh, now there's going to be a bunch I'm... without. When he told me that, I was like, oh, this guy's pretty knowledgeable. He was like a really smart like botanist anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, what do you think, Daniel? I did not come across any official studies regarding that, but it's more so behavioral, like certain rattlesnakes that are more inclined to rattle because they don't always do it unless sometimes you're right up on them or sometimes never at all. The ones that do rattle and give away their presence are killed off. So, and that was happening so immensely that it was actually acting as selection against rattlesnakes that rattled more often. So resulting in surviving rattlesnakes being ones that were never found because they hadn't rattled. So wow. I haven't so been able more to like really look into that, but I, yeah, but yeah. I have heard that several times. I just don't know how truthful it is. I couldn't find anything about it. Yeah. So it sounds good. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is a red flag right there. <laughs> so we'll have to look into some studies on that. Yeah. That would just go to show you just how immensely they are persecuted. Yes. Killed off. And oh, yeah. That is one thing I came across in my, yeah. in my research, just how often people, if they see a rattlesnake, will, will kill it. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the time. And, you know, we're going to talk about how that is diminishing populations of all sorts of rattlesnakes. But... Daniel, when we were waiting to start the mic up, you told me a story about a friend down south. I think that's a good perspective to share. Well, you know, I go into things a lot of times with uh, environmental bias to it, and I try to be aware of that. You bastard. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, my opinion was always, you know, no, you can't kill venomous snakes. They're part of the ecosystem, all that. And I still feel that way, but I was a bit more understanding when I did encounter an individual who killed a canebrake rattlesnake and he was just saying to me if i'm out at the okefenokee national wildlife refuge or some kind of public land i'm not going to kill a rattlesnake but if it's in my yard where i have my kids running around and my dogs that's a different story and i was a bit more understanding to that not that that's what i would do but you know it is good to try and get multiple perspectives right i also heard and this is another thing i don't know if it's true or not I heard that they're not easy to relocate. Like, I have heard that. If you relocate it, it'll come back. Because, uh, let me catch my breath really quick. We were hiking <laughs> up quite a hill. <laughs> I had a friend that uh, lived in New Mexico for a while. And he said they had these storage units. And he said they did find a rattlesnake in there. And I think they did have to kill it. Because they said even if you take it out, it'll find a way back in. And just get up between the mattresses again or whatever. Yikes. It was just too much of a danger. <laughs> to the employees there so and i did come across at least one study i can't say how many studies support this but one study that did look into when they have these events we'll talk more about them later these rattlesnake roundups in different areas of the country where people go out and gather as many rattlesnakes as they can some places they kill them after some places they let them go hmm. um, but one study that looked at it said that there was a mortality rate i believe it was around 50 percent just after they were released researchers followed up and they found that uh, a high number of them didn't make it hmm. so because they do seem to be very tied to their habitat their specific habitat i know they have what's it called when they return to the philopatry same, yeah to yeah. their hibernaculum their winter dens yeah hmm. i've read the same thing yeah. yeah so you put them in somewhere somewhere they're not familiar with and they don't know what to do mm -hmm. i think i've heard that about ants too i i sorry this is the uh <laughs> episodely getting off topic at least the, the first one um, I guess if like there's an ant on your windshield when you're like driving somewhere, <laughs> it's like e even if it stays on your windshield the whole time and it safely parks with you, 
He's like, done for? Yeah, it's, he's done for. <laughs> At least that's what I've heard, is that they're done for. Right. He or she is done for. Well, that's like us moving uh, across the country. It's a 10-minute <laughs> car ride for them. <laughs> that's true. Right, right. So the you mentioned that the, the timber rattlesnake can also be known as the canebrake rattlesnake. Yes, this is mostly referring to the populations in the southeastern coastal plain. So right. the coastal ones down south. And I did find when I was doing some research for this podcast episode that there was previously a subspecies declaration down there that was mostly affiliated with the canebrake rattlesnake. Right, yeah. Huh. Yeah, but that is no longer a valid subspecies. And it's all it... Crotalus horridus. Right. So yeah. it's all considered no subspecies at this point. Correct. Right. So I heard it was also referred to as the banded rattlesnake. Uh, which makes sense because we're going to talk now about what it looks like. So I came across the coloration is very variable, but generally you'll have dark bands. Some uh, sites call them chevrons overlaying a backdrop of lighter colored scales. So individuals can have black stripes over a gray background or more of a brown on tan color scheme. Some refer to those two color phases, but I did come across that some say three with one more of like a cream colored other than a tan colored, which to me seems pretty close. Yeah. The lighter morph is sometimes referred to as the golden phase. Like there's one park near here, a state park where timbers have been seen. And just a few years ago, um, someone recorded video of one they posted on social media and then some newspapers picked it up and referred to it as the golden phase. Golden hmm. phase. The golden phase. So that is the same as that lighter phase though, that yellowish? Yes. Okay. So it depends on what site. You're yeah. saying some people refer to it as, well, the golden phase is very specific. It's that cream colored. Okay. And they separate that from the more tan colors to me. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> it depends who's looking at it, right? Neither of which are gold. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a lot of variation. And it was formerly believed that the dark phase was male and the lighter was female, or that individuals born in higher elevations would be darker. But studies have shown that those beliefs are false. Hmm. So coloration doesn't change over the snake's life. I came across some more historical records that claimed that they got darker as they got older. That's not true. Hmm. They keep the same color pattern for their whole life. Those cross bands I talked about, they often have irregular zigzag edges. So they may be more V or M shaped, hmm. like that chevron shape I talked about. And there's often a dorsal stripe running visibly down the middle of the back. Uh, it's typically brown, but it can range from light orange or even to yellow. Uh, and the underside is uniformly yellowish, uh, often modeled with black speckling. Melanism is often common. So that's excessive production of melanin, the, the dark brown or black pigment in our skin or hair. So some individuals are very dark, almost solid black. Hmm. Uh, but even in the darkest individuals, uh, timber rattlesnakes stand out from other snake species because they have large triangular scales with a thick medial keel, almost like a line down the middle of the scale that stands out from other species. Hmm. Hmm. So a good way to ID it. So if we ever do come across one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I, I was gonna say like, yeah. if I'm close enough to see that keel, <laughs> I'm probably too close, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I was just, <laughs> sorry, when you were given the description, I always <laughs> laugh when I hear stuff like this, but uh, luckily that dorsal stripe is on its back right and not its belly right because then it wouldn't be a dorsal strike <laughs> and we'll talk about that we're going to get into like how to how to id can right, you id right. a venomous snake from a non-venomous snake and i've always heard flathead is venomous we'll talk about something. that but one of the ways i came across was looking at the underside and the pattern of the scales and i'm like <laughs> well, why not you, doing that <laughs> right exactly i'm just gonna pick them up and see yeah yeah so let's talk about the rattle. Uh, real quick, I just yeah. wanted to add the orangish markings that you talked about, they tend to be expressed more heavily with the cane breaks. So the Down southeastern south. population ones. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> so the rattle, what is the rattle made out of? What do you think? I don't know. Well, keratin. I, I was going to say keratin, yeah. but... Uh, you, you would have been right if yeah. you said it. <laughs> but, but I said it too late. Yeah. So Dan beat you to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a newborn's tail is tipped with a scaly lobe called a pre-button. That's lost once the animal sheds its skin for the first time. At that point, the pre-button will be replaced by a button. Uh, the knob of old skin that then becomes the first segment in the rattle. Hmm. And then when do they add new segments? Every, every time, time they, they molt? Sh- yeah, yeah, every time they shed. Hmm. So, And that's another reason you can't tell how old they are because yeah. the snake's going to shed based on you know, its overall health, how much it's eating, and all that stuff. Yeah, up so, to 100 times a year. Oh, right. So that rattle can be gigantic. Like every like third day. <laughs> so the young, they'll add two to five rattles in their first year, typically. They'll oh, shed wow. that wow. many times in their first year. Typically, a snake will have eight to 13, an adult hmm. snake. That's okay. what I came across. And, okay. and what's their longevity, I guess? We're going to get to that. Okay, okay. All right. Don't, don't screw me up here. I'll try not to. <laughs> so just to, to reiterate, the number of rattles does not equal the age. Um, some people say with an adult snake, you can take the number of rattles and kind of divide it by the number of times they typically molt. But again, you're going to get an average at best. Hmm. And because of the way the segments interlock, they do produce that audible buzz when shaken. And here we're going to insert the sound of a rattlesnake. Okay. All right. If you hear that sound... Back away slowly, right? Well, how unfortunate would it be if someone was coming across a rattlesnake while listening to the podcast at that moment? <laughs> it would be bad. <laughs> Terrible so, timing. So, Terrible yeah, timing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so adults are usually three to five feet long. And Dan, again, if, if you found different information, let me know. Sure. And they weigh between one and three pounds, often towards the lower end of that range. But the maximum reported total I found was 74 inches, so over six feet long. But again, wow. that is way beyond the the typical yeah that's an um, outlier yeah outlier some reports up to nine pounds wow so they can't get but rarely do they get that big there does appear to be some sexual dimorphism you know males and females looking different with males larger and this is where we're going to get into scales number of scales shape of scales because once you start digging into snakes i'm sure you guys have come across a little bit like IDing between species, male and female, you got to really get into knowing the different scales on the different parts of the body, what they're called, what they look like, how they're shaped, their placement, and that's going to tell you a lot. We're not going to delve too deep into that here because I feel like there's so much information and I was just too lazy to really dive in. The, 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 the <laughs> closest I've ever come to IDing snake is I, identifying plants based on their bud scales, <laughs> like knapweeds and stuff. Similar, so, yeah, yeah, similar but, to but, that. But basically the same. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to know a lot of this stuff. So. But, <laughs> you're going to be an expert. <laughs> and I should say, I wasn't being lazy. There was just so much information on timber rattlesnakes. Hmm. And that's, that's really another reason it took me so long to feel comfortable and ready to record Uh, Because typically we tackle a topic and within a few sessions of sitting down, I kind of find kind of the meat that I think would would make a good topic for the episode. But there's just so much like we rarely do reptiles. I don't know if we've ever done reptiles before. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. We've done amphibians, but I don't know if we've ever done reptiles before. (laughs) There was just so much information out there. A lot of great information and a lot of bad information. I guess you could say that about any topic. On <laughs> right, that, right. But, sure. um, but when you know nothing about it, or very little on a topic, that's right. even more dangerous. <laughs> Did you have to yeah. say, with, with species like this that are you know considered dangerous or uh, vermin or whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like animal control 
websites like businesses that you hire to come and eliminate certain animals from your house or from your business or your property that put out a lot of information that is not accurate. <laughs> so if you come across information on timber rattlesnakes and it's attached to like a business that's making money getting rid of these animals, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good I, to know. Yeah. yeah. I'm not personally scared of snakes, but I, at the same time, I do admit they are like, they are nightmare fuel a little bit. Like even that, even that scene in Indiana Jones where the pit of snakes, <laughs> that was horrifying. I know on social media every now and then like a clip comes along where it's like a big snake's falling through someone's ceiling or something. Oh, God. <laughs> like and I, that, for some reason I've seen that one way too many times. I've seen that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It's wild. So snakes are nightmare fuel for sure. Um, danger maybe noodles. Just, they're so yeah. Danger noodles. Yeah. <laughs> right? They're just so different from us and they. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it's, it's totally true. I mean, talking to people that I work with, I, I work at a school and talking about that we're doing an episode on rattlesnakes. I would say more people than not would give a negative response yeah. to the idea. Yeah, you know, I see especially a lizard. snakes in general. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I see a lizard, right? And I'm like, it's just like me. It's got like hands, and, like, it's got arms <laughs> totally. and legs. And, yeah. And, but I look at a snake and I'm like, what is this freak? <laughs> <laughs> what is this thing? All right. Uh, let me finish what I was going to say. Sure. Cause Dan, it looks like you got something you want to say. Is that true? Uh, when we start talking a little bit more about venom, that's okay. when I have most of my contributions. All right. So I was mentioning how there's some sexual dimorphism. So on the underside of the snake, so if you have the snake flipped over and you're looking at the underside, the snakes, or I'm sorry, the scales that kind of run from its head to its cloaca, that opening where it eliminates wastes and the eggs come out, those are called the ventral scales. Then you have the anal scale that is just forward of the cloaca. And then from the cloaca to the tail, those are called the subcaudal scales. And again, folks, I'm not an expert, so if I'm saying any of this wrong, please let us know. But males will have 21 or more subcaudal scales, so going from the cloaca to the very tip of the, or to the start of the rattle. Females are going to have 20 or less. But again, I wouldn't recommend picking one up to see. <laughs> it's a male! <laughs> um, their heads are vaguely triangular. They do have those vertical pupils um, in the one source I said lidless eyes, but do any snakes have lids on their eyes? I don't know. I Not no that idea. I know. We'll have to look that up. And an important thing to look for in timbers and their relatives is they have that heat sensing pit located between the eye and the nostril on both sides of the head. And that's a feature shared by all rattlesnakes. So every animal on the planet gives off that invisible infrared. So even in total darkness, these facial pits can detect that radiation. And the snakes perceive this as visual heat. The pit does have a membrane on one part that attaches to thermal receptors that feed into the trigeminal nerve, which we also have. It's connected a lot to facial sensation, vision, lots of things. And in the snakes, that nerve feeds into the optic portion of the brain. So the information mm. that the snakes are sensing about infrared around them, they're receiving that as like visual stimuli, at least in part. So if a warm-bodied mouse does wander past a snake on a moonless, cloudy night, the snake could locate it using those pit organs despite the poor lighting conditions. Hmm. So let's talk about IDing a venomous snake. So, Daniel, as far as you know, is there any reliable way to ID a venomous snake? Um, <laughs> I'm putting them on the spot. I, I know. 
it's tough you know you hear things like oh the triangular head and then you then read that that's not true because certain water snakes those are the ones down south that mostly get confused with cottonmouths the venomous species they'll flatten out their heads so it it's kind of just looking at the colorations and markings is how i would do that with certain getting species to know down south. Snakes. getting to know the individuals as far as like criteria for just determining whether it's venomous or not that i'm not aware of really. yeah so my, yeah. my question is though let's say I mean, maybe this isn't the case, but let's say it's just venomous snakes and then the mimics that flatten their head. Does that still mean that it's that the rule still isn't a good one? Like if they're mimicking poisonous snake or venomous snakes. Yeah. I almost feel like the rule is still pretty good <laughs> unless it's just a not totally non mimics, non venomous. Also do it. You well, know? what I would well, say, go ahead, Daniel. Well, I was just going to add to that. If you're not a hundred percent sure right <laughs> assume it's venomous the mimicry when, works just assume they're all venomous <laughs> i had a, a four-hour boat tour in the okifinoki swamp and we stopped at a place called coffee bay it was you know a dry area where you can get out and stretch and there is a porta potty there in the middle of the swamp oh. so it was it was a very very important stop for our extended tours but we stopped there and we were walking through a patch of maiden cane which is this straw it looks like hay the straw like plant which is a great spot for a young cottonmouth to be hiding in because they mm. you know blend in so well and we almost stepped on what ended up being a young cottonmouth it was when i was just down there for a few weeks so i wasn't 100 percent sure um i assumed it was a cottonmouth and mm. i took pictures of it i thought maybe it's a water snake but we're just going to pretend like it's venomous and then sure enough when i reached out to more competent naturalists <laughs> at the time down there they confirmed that yeah that was a young cottonmouth that we almost stepped on wow. so it's just like unless you're a thousand percent sure just assume it's venomous <laughs> That's Even kind if you're of what just 100% people. sure. <laughs> so a approach snakes like you approach uh, mushrooms sometimes. There you yeah. go. Yeah, Unless you're with like you a go. crazy super expert. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. There are rules like the triangular head that in certain areas of the country, they do apply. But you need to know what the snakes are in that area. So right, right. that's really the best rule of thumb is to get to know the snakes in your area. Yes. There's no quick and easy rule of thumb that applies everywhere. No, so right. people want there to be. I know. But unfortunately, <laughs> there's not. One that I came across, which I thought was great, was that venomous snakes smell like cucumbers. What? Uh, totally not true. <laughs> I know. I heard of that too. Yeah. I heard of Is that this too. related to uh, those cat videos where they'll put a cucumber on the ground next to their cat, and then when the cat sees it, they like fly away? <laughs> freak out? Yeah, uh, yeah. We've tried that with our cats. It doesn't work. Nothing? No. Uh, no. <laughs> That's disappointing. The cat yeah. just looks at like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I think your cats have given up on this. <laughs> <laughs> So the triangular head rule, pit vipers, which rattlesnakes are members of the pit viper family, they do have triangular heads, but so do some non-venomous snakes. And as Daniel pointed out, some can flare the sides of their head in defense, so they look like those. Some venomous snakes, like the coral snake, do not have triangular heads. Yeah. Oh, that's true. They have like little streamlined heads. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. yeah. And then all some people say all venomous snakes have those elliptical pupils, like cat's eyes. Um, rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, and copperheads do, but some non-venomous snakes do too. Coral snakes, again, don't. And then most snakes, their their pupils are going to respond to light levels. So in low light, all snakes look like they have round pupils, you know, unless you're looking <laughs> oh. super close. And again, you're going to get close enough to look. All right, I just need to get close enough to look at the eyes. <laughs> um, That's like cats too, though, I guess, because yeah. there's so many times my cat's got like, right. you know, yeah. huge He looks pupils. high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So those pits that I talked about, those are an indication that it's a pit viper hmm. and all pit vipers are venomous. But if you don't spend a lot of time looking at snakes, those pits can often look like nostrils. The yeah. nostrils are typically smaller. 
Okay, so it can be hard unless you spend time looking at snakes and their heads to know the difference. You gotta be close. So I did find one that said, well, you can use teeth marks if there's just two teeth marks, two big teeth marks, it's probably a venomous snake because that's fangs. <laughs> but if it's a row of teeth, it's probably not venomous. At that point, there might be other indications. <laughs> right, that exactly. Yeah. At that point, it's really too late. Yeah. <laughs> really? So snakes have like multiple teeth that they'll non-venomous snakes have. We're going to talk about okay. using dentition um, hmm. and the different types of dentition out there. But typically, hmm. venomous snakes. Not always, but typically venomous snakes are going to have fangs mm. as their delivery mechanism. Have you been bit by a garter snake before? Yes. Also a member of the pit viper family. No. <laughs> no. no, no, no. I was like, ah, fact checkers are going to get us on that one. But we're going to get back I, to I garter snakes. I meant to snakes. say that slightly differently. <laughs> <laughs> you delivered that like perfectly. Yeah. So the, the thing I alluded to before with the subcaudal scales, those scales in between the cloaca on the underside and the, the rattle, or if it's not a rattlesnake, if it's just a venomous snake, supposedly those scales will just be a row of single scales, one above the other, all right? In non-venomous snakes, supposedly, that section between the, the cloaca and the tip of the tail, you're gonna have a double row, where you're gonna have two scales next to each other, then underneath two scales next to each other, all the way to the bottom. But then I also found further, a venomous snake may have near the very tip of the tail, two rows. Hmm. So it's it can be very confusing. Hmm. And again, if you're picking it up and looking at the underside, I suppose if a snake has bitten you and then you kill the snake and you're trying to figure out what species it is, these <laughs> things could be helpful. But basically, consult an expert, hmm. right? Yeah. Get to know your snakes if you really want to know. There's no easy and fast rule. All right. You guys want to walk? Sure. Yeah. We're well, sitting halfway up this hill. So we're going to talk about distribution and, and habitat now. So I mentioned before that rattlesnakes are in almost every state here in the U.S., but timber rattlesnakes are in 27 states. And we didn't say the scientific name. Dana, you want to share it? Crotalus horridus. Horridus. And what does that mean? I think horridus is like, is it horrible? terrible? Yeah, yeah. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. That one I knew. <laughs> and then crotalus is, it comes from a Greek word for rattle or castanet, so it's a horrible rattle. Oh, oh okay. Right? Now their range extends in the south from Texas to northern Florida, and then north to Minnesota, across to New Hampshire. And it's second only to the prairie rattlesnake out west as the most, most northerly distributed venomous snake in North America. Mm -hmm. They are extirpated, no longer found in Michigan, Delaware, Maine, and Rhode Island, and it's considered close to extirpation in New Hampshire. I think I read that there's only one yeah. population left. Yep and it's not doing that well. Yep. <laughs> Canada listed it as extirpated. There was a recovery strategy where they were considering reintroducing them, but in 2009, it was abandoned because the research into the strategy found that there's just not enough habitat that would make it seem viable where they could thrive. So they're found in... Oh, Extirpation is just a nice word for extinct populations. Extinct populations with their own unique genetic diversity. Sure. And ever since I switched to genomics work and population genetics stuff, I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> the populations are the bomb. Super important. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, super important. Daniel, I think in your research, back me up here, but I've, I've found generally it seems that in the more northern parts of the range, they're not doing very well. Yeah. And in and, the more southern parts. In a lot of the cases. In the more yeah. southern parts of the range, they're doing 
okay. Th that's what it seems just from the research that I've done. It's just shown that in a lot of places in the Northeast, they are declining. Yes. The one state that I did see that had more stable populations was Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. That's what yeah. I found. I yeah. think I came across that they have something like a thousand different sites is or it? something like that. Yeah, I haven't found something with numbers like that. Yeah, but so Pennsylvania seems to be doing pretty well. So isn't Pennsylvania also like a crazy state for, it's like one of the biggest hunting states too. It is. So I have to imagine yeah. they, it's probably gotta be due to the fact that they have a lot of land for them, like a lot of habitat. That's what you need, right? Yeah. Habitat. One article I came across said, across many parts of the country, timbers aren't nearly as common as they used to be. Now. What I found was surprising was compared to their historic range, their current range isn't much smaller. It's contracted maybe like 25%. Because hmm. you look at historical maps and current maps, you don't see a big shift. But as you just said, Steve, populations have undergone drastic declines. Hmm. So they're almost found, generally speaking, across the same areas of our landscape, but there's just much fewer in many areas. That is interesting though, because normally when you see such devastation to the overall population of a species, it right. normally involves, you know, the, the range getting smaller. Right, yeah. a much more drastic contraction of the range. Yeah. Populations have undergone drastic declines range-wide due to loss of habitat to development, removal by collectors, and then as we've already talked about, mortality from persecution and roadkill. Here in New York State, it's thought that populations have been reduced by 60%, and that's according to that uh, DEC assessment. Yes. Our uh, state conservation uh, group, that was in 2013, so hmm. about 10 years ago. Now they're found in a variety of habitats up here in the north. Uh, you can find them with on rocky slopes within and near forested habitats. Out west, they seem to prefer dry, brushy flatlands, uh, beech, maple, birch, woodlands. And then in the south and southeast, they're found in forested floodplains, cane thickets, and swamps. Now, hang on a sec, because I didn't know what a cane thicket was. Now, you called it the cane break uh, rattlesnake. And cane thicket and cane break seems to be the same name for a habitat, where it's a thicket of any variety of arundinaria grasses. Have you heard of those before? No. So it's a bamboo. Oh, okay. These giant grasses, they grow in thickets up to 24 feet tall, and they were formerly widespread across the south, potentially covering 10 million acres. I'd never heard of this habitat before. Yeah, huh. and those habitats, as you mentioned, were usually referred to as canebrake. That right. was a popular term for it, and because this rattlesnake was encountered a lot adjacent to those habitats, it got the name canebrake rattlesnake. Yeah. So that dis the destruction of those habitats has impacted a number of species, including the Florida panther, and it's thought it may have contributed to the demise of extinct species like the Bachman's warbler, which was just recently declared extinct. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. And then the Carolina parakeet. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to get into taxonomy next, but this is a good spot to do our gum leaf ad break. Yeah. All right, so we want to talk about our one of our sponsors, Gum Leaf Boots. And I actually have an email that I want to use as our ad today. Right. Oh, okay. So this was an email we got. This was a few months ago now. This is from Kim. So she said, hi, guys. I love your podcast. Sometimes I listen with my kids, seven and five years old, and I just wanted to tell you a funny story. The retention pond behind our house had flooded after some big rains, and there were ducks hanging out back there. I took my kids out to look at the ducks and find whatever else had taken up temporary residence back there. My seven-year-old got to the edge of the water and yells, 
I wish I had some gum leaf boots. Then I could just walk right through there. It just cracked me up. I just became a patron in the last few weeks, and I hope you guys are able to keep doing the podcast. Thanks so much for teaching me new things about nature. She said, P.S. I've been listening to older episodes, too, because I just found you guys within the last year. The 12-year-old boy humor is A-OK with me. Perfect. <laughs> so thanks, Kim, for sending that yeah. in. And thank you to Gumleaf Boots for sponsoring the podcast. If you become a patron, you get free shipping on any orders of Gumleaf Boots. So check out gumleafusa.com. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add there? No, I think that's it. <laughs> Kim covered it. Kim did. She did a great job. All right, so on with taxonomy, Steve's favorite topic. Mm-hmm. They this is the meat of the episode. This, this is, is this the, is where we find out heart. where the uh, where the uh, garter snake falls <laughs> compared to this one. So timber rattlesnakes, they belong to the family Viperidae. I think I'm saying that right. Those are all vipers, and all vipers are venomous. They belong specifically to the subfamily Crotalinae. Am I saying that right? Crotalinae. Yeah, maybe maybe ae Crotalinae. Yeah. I think. And those are the pit vipers, also called the pit adders. And they're so named because of those heat sensing pits we mentioned. In Eurasia and the Americas, this subfamily includes the water moccasin, also called the cottonmouth, cottonmouth, the southeast US, the eastern copperhead, and then the bushmaster of Central and South America. The timber rattlesnake was actually described by Carl Linnaeus hmm. in his 1758 edition of Systema Naturae, and it still bears the original name he gave it, Crotalus horridus. And as we already mentioned, no subspecies are currently recognized, although it was a source of ongoing debate in the late 1900s. And the subspecies, which you mentioned, the canebrake, was Crotalus horridus atricaudatus. Hmm. But that's considered invalid at this point. So yep. it makes it easy for once <laughs> that if you see a timber rattlesnake, it's Crotalus horridus. You can shout that out as you're dying from being in, ven in venomated. Right? <laughs> the groupers uh, win that one and so. steve I'm, it just popped into my head as i was driving here i'm like oh we got to remember to talk about this for the audience are rattlesnakes poisonous or venomous well did you hear earlier in the episode where i said poisonous and i had to quickly switch to venomous no i blocked it out. no <laughs> you <laughs> like said poisonous else. earlier bill did almost called you out on it oh, yeah. you should have i should have <laughs> call me out on that <laughs> let's let's add like a, a wrong buzzer you know <laughs> yeah. like when bill says it yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> um so i would say they're venomous but I don't know what happens if you eat one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think well, you, you can eat them. If you don't I'm eat the sure you can gland, eat them. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Mm. Right? That's the seasoning, though. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you add it to the rest of the snake. Just yeah. a dash. Just yeah. a dash. All right. But but tell people the difference. Venomous. So w when you're venomous, you're, like, injecting, right. you know, the... The venom. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I almost called it poison, and then I had to stop myself. <laughs> but when it's poison, it's it's through ingestion or, or even... Um, does poison count if it's through, like, skin contact? Or, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I like and to say venom is used, like, offensively, and then poison used defensively. Uh -huh. That's like kind of like an easy... I like that. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So I just had to throw that in there, because we did talk about this. Shout out to the uh, Daddy Long Leg episode. Oh, yeah. We talked about poisonous and venomous. Uh -huh. All right, so... Daniel, I know you want to talk about uh, venom. That may have to come if we if we do a part two because this I have so much information here that we may be breaking this up. Yeah, bad movie so, anyway, honestly. So what? Venom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> both of them. Yeah, <laughs> we're real critical on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about behavior now, if that's okay. So during the winter, what do they do, guys? Hmm. Yeah. They don't. Well, hibernate. I'm not seeing any slithering around out here. No, they don't. Rumation. So Daniel, can you give people uh, like just a quick 
breakdown on what's the difference between hibernation and brumation? Yeah, hibernation is mostly associated with mammals, you know, more of a, a complete shutdown where their body temperature really drops to the surrounding environments, uh, almost matching that. Their heart rate drops down substantially and they're essentially in this very, very deep, intense sleep throughout the whole winter. Brumation is, in terms of certain reptile species, it's more of like a slow down of your energy. You're not totally unconscious like hibernating mammals are. So like with American alligators and their brumation, they're really just basking and then spending time like sleeping or hanging out in the water too. It's not like they're just sleeping throughout the entire season yeah. in this real deep sleep. That's and essentially, to my knowledge, a big difference. And I would say, I may have mentioned it before, we tried to do an episode on brumation. And it just seems like there's not a lot of information out there. Like there's not a lot of people doing active research on brumation. I mean, there may be somebody shouting at their radio right now saying that they are, but yeah. I think they're doing that. They're one of the very, very few people doing that because mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't find enough information for an episode. And I feel like the stages of brumation would differ. So like in the winter time down south where it's not near as cold, yes. is that still technically considered brumation when they're in areas where they're maybe not eating and they're very sluggish? Like is that mm -hmm. brumation right. or when they're totally set in their hibernaculums throughout the winter up here in the northeast? You know, that's definitely brumation too. So it's just a question of when is it considered a state of brumation yeah. versus when are they just not quite as active because it's colder you and know did, so that's, that's what i found across their range what they do during the winter time yeah. varies yes you know, depending on the the severity of the cold so what point of inactivity would be brumation is right. the question right yeah. yeah so up here you mentioned hibernaculum we said that word a couple times give people an idea what is a hibernaculum because i'm uh, sure some people don't know yeah uh, the hibernaculum is where they spend their time in the winter to avoid the colder weathers and usually uh together in groups is what i found yep in underground places that way they're avoiding the the cold yep and uh as we mentioned earlier but they do have some fidelity to that site uh, actually it's very strong so when they are active they'll tend to still venture like i think i read a couple miles or so away from that hibernaculum yeah. so they do like to stay in that spot near that area and i did find that they'll often be in the hibernaculum with other species too, like copperheads or black rat snakes. Oh, wow. So it's hmm. not just all uh, timber rattles. Wow. So that communal wintering den, they'll often use chemical trails to locate it when it is time to head in there. And then a study of den sites in the northern ranges, like around here, showed that 70% were on south-facing slopes. Oh, okay. So Steve, why would it be a south-facing slope? Because that's where that sun is. That's right. So their mating season is from early summer to early autumn. And after mating, females store sperm through the winter until implantation of the embryos the following spring. Wow. And then gestation lasts about four to five months. And then young are born late August to mid-September. I couldn't find if that's consistent across the range or not. I, I bet it would probably change just because the, right. you know, the variation in the climate. Yeah. Like normally like breeding right. season with birds, like you know, barred owls would be earlier down in Okefenokee than up here. Yeah. So I'd imagine be different, but so I don't know for sure. Sometime around then, they typically have four to 14 young. Uh, the neonates, which what they call the newborns, are around 10 to 14 inches at birth, so around a foot long. And they're born encased in a transparent membrane, like a yolk sac, which they shed within a few minutes. So we're going to talk hmm. about different types of reproduction, egg laying, non-leg, oh, non no. <laughs> egg laying and snakes. Cause I think I have a pretty good breakdown. Hmm. Oh, uh, nice. Shout out, to this. shout out to Mary Holland. So if you guys know about Mary Holland, she has a, uh, she has some books. She has a website where she does nature observations like every day. Hmm. So the timber rattlesnake is viviparous. 
meaning they give birth to live young. I was going to say, that's like sharks, right? Sharks are also viviparous? Because yes. that's where I've heard the term, I think, before. And doesn't the, the beginning part of that word have to do with like life, right? Well, viva uh, is to live in Spanish. Right, so. right. <laughs> All right, so there you go. So 70% of the world's snakes lay eggs, and those are oviparous. Okay. So ovo, egg, right? Yeah. The rest give birth to live young, viviparous. So oviparous snakes, the egg layers, tend to live in warmer climates where the substrate they lay their eggs in is warm enough to incubate the eggs. Gotcha. Okay, so, I mean, think about reptiles, cold-blooded, you're obviously going to have more of those in warm areas. Yeah. The ground is warm enough to incubate their eggs. Most egg-laying snakes deposit their eggs and then depart, just relying on the substrate to do the incubation to take care of their young. Hmm. Viviparous snakes tend to live in cooler regions where the ground is too cold to provide incubation. So... There is a distinction, though, to make it more complicated, between egg-laying snakes. The majority of snakes that lay eggs do so outside their body, in a protected area like a rotting log. So those are the ones that are known as oviparous. But there's also egg-laying snakes that retain their eggs inside their body until they're ready to hatch. These snakes are called ovoviviparous. <laughs> Oh, no. Don't tell me that this no. is what sharks actually are. <laughs> I wonder I if I'm confusing know. things. So do yeah. they expel the egg then, or does it get reabsorbed? I think the eggs hatch body. inside of the them. The eggs and, hatch yeah. inside. So ovoviviparous yeah. snakes, such as the garter snake, hmm. appear, appear to give birth to live young, but they actually don't. Unlike the viviparous species, like the timber, the live birth, there is no placental connection or transfer of fluids between mothers and babies because the developing young snakes feed on the substances in their individual eggs. Okay, so those are the ovoviviparous. The snakes emerge from the mother when they hatch from their eggs, giving them the appearance of live birth. The gestation period for oviparous snakes is generally longer than for ovoviviparous snakes and vary from a few weeks to a few months in length. So you're saying the ones that... Have sorry. eggs that lay outside the body? Yeah is generally sure. longer. Oh, that's longer? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, which okay. I was kind of surprised at. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You got it all? Yes. <laughs> no, I just wanted the, the eggs that are inside the body what for happens the ovoviparous. Yes, like yeah. does that thing get ex expelled at some point? Does it get reabsorbed? So you're gonna know. look that up. We can put that <laughs> into oh, the more episode homework. notes. <laughs> all right. So you have viviparous, which is live young, oviparous, which lay eggs outside the body, and then ovoviviparous, which the eggs hatch in their body. Okay. Good explanation, Bill. All right, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you to Mary Highland. <laughs> so the young, when they're born, they're miniature versions of the adults. We're back on the timber rattlesnake now, complete mm -hmm. with hollow fangs, venom, and that tiny rattle segment called the pre-button. So shortly after birth, they shed their skin, drop their pre-button to reveal the button, and then they remain in the area with mom for one to two weeks until they shed and then they disperse. So females are a little more defensive when they are around the young for that one to two weeks. Hmm. In the fall, the young typically follow their parents' scent trail back to the den for the winter, and that's more common up here in the north. Hmm. So interesting part though, when we talked about how the timber rattlesnakes are declining in a lot of areas, that's tied partially to their reproduction because they're so slow to mature. Yes. Yeah, they typically live, you asked about this, Steve, they typically live for 15 to 20 years they can go to 30. I, yeah, I saw some records. I, I saw 30. one record of 50, but 50, that's wow. got to be in captivity yeah. or someone lying. I read 30 in the wild. One case of really? one in the wild is wow. 30. Okay, yeah. so there's there's some variation there. Hmm. But the average female 
doesn't start reproducing until almost age 10. So if they typically live 15 to 20 years, like if we compare that to people, that would be like if people didn't start reproducing until they were 40 years old. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, After the birth of her first litter, a mother timber might not have another one, another litter for three to five more years or ever. So a lifetime reproduction study of a population in the Adirondack Mountains here in New York, they found that the first reproduction occurs at a mean age of 9.6 years, so about wow. 10 years. The mean length of a reproductive cycle from one to the next is 4.2 years. Wow. The mean reproductive lifespan, how long they could reproduce for, is again, 9.6 years. So you got like a, an average 9.6 year window. The average litter size is 7.7. So they may only reproduce like a couple times in right. their life. Wow. Right. Yeah. Non-viable offspring were found in 20% of the field litters. So one out of five times there were non-viable offspring. <laughs> and they said in that one study in the Adirondack Mountains, most females only reproduced once. Wow. So they're being, you know, losing their habitat, being persecuted by people. And even the ones that are making it, they're only pre- reproducing a couple times. So... You want right. that first kid like in pre-K, kindergarten before you, you know, think about a second one. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy though, how, how long they're waiting. I, yeah, yeah, I don't think we've heard of that with another species. Yeah, like I'd like to know why. I couldn't find any reason like why they wait so long. Yeah. Um, Education. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Right. They want to live their life before yeah, yeah, they become um, a parent. They, they want a career. Yeah. Uh, access, yeah, <laughs> access to career. birth control. Good for them. <laughs> All right, so I think that is a good spot for us to end part one and we can finally let Daniel do some more talking. Well, how part about two. let's call this one you sure part, you want that? Let's call this one part mono. Part mono? Because, <laughs> because Bill. <laughs> you may have noticed me coughing a little bit, folks. So I just found out this morning yeah. I was diagnosed with mono. So yeah. The kissing disease. The, yeah, I was going to say that that was the only way we uh, agreed to show up is to make sure that Bill doesn't kiss us. <laughs> no kissing on this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Not on this one. <laughs> yeah. Although I found out you can be contagious for months with this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Also, you can have like really high temperatures and like uh, hallucinate and stuff. So, <laughs> awesome. This whole, this whole to. episode, Dana, I disappear. We're not actually out here with you. I'm just out here by myself. <laughs> well, well, I'll figure that out when I listen back. And it's just me talking and yeah. no response. All right, so folks, uh, I'm not 100% sure at this point when part two is going to come out, but it's going to be coming out soon after. So uh, join us again for part two, and that's when we'll do our official wrap up. All right. All right.